The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Welcome to Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's been an attorney mediator for 26 years, and during that time she's resolved thousands of disputes as a neutral conflict healer. She's a member of the Orange County Superior Court Mediation Panel, and she's been a law professor of negotiations and mediation and presently teaches negotiations right here at UCI. She's the author of Negotiations, Breakthroughs, and co-author of Stepping Stones to Success and several other books. To listen to previous interviews, see upcoming guests, download podcasts, and learn more, visit www.conflicthealing.com. So Mari, what's your show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about forgiveness and the power of forgiveness. You know, we've talked about that many times on this show because part of healing conflict is really forgiving and we forgive not just for the person actually we forgive for ourselves we give it up we give up the pain we give up the anger we give up the resentment and it frees us and so that's what we're going to be talking about today and we have a wonderful book that i just have been reading it's called releasing chains by lisa gibson and let me tell you a a little bit about lisa Lisa lost her brother in one of the world's most deadly acts of terrorism, and that was the Flight 103 bombing over uh, Lockerbie, Scotland, back in 1988. And, And I remember that one and didn't know anybody who had perished on that one, but it was pretty devastating. And this was a terrible loss for her, for her brother, and she missed her brother every day. And continues to miss him. Yet, Lisa has forgiven the terrorist mastermind responsible. She made the headlines when she met with and forgave former Libyan leader um, Gaddafi. And Lisa has been featured on CNN, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox News, and countless others to talk about the power of forgiveness. She's made it her life's mission to help others move through the pain of loss to wholeness and forgiveness. And she reveals what it takes to forgive anyone for anything, no matter what the crime, betrayal, offense, or injury. Lisa is a global conflict coach. She's an attorney mediator like me. She's a professional speaker and author. And her books include the the award-winning bestseller, Life in Death, A Journey from Terrorism to Triumph, and the new book that I have right here called Releasing the Chains, Timeless Wisdom on How to Forgive Anyone for Anything. You can find out more about her at her website at conflictcoach.biz. But we are so glad to have you join us, Lisa, from Colorado. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So this must have been, how old were you when you lost your brother? 
I was actually 18 years old when uh, my brother was killed on that terrorist attack, and my, just finished up my first term of my freshman year of college. What a horrible thing to, to for a young woman to experience. And so how did you react at first? Well, I mean, I had just come home for Christmas break, and so I was really looking forward to seeing my brother. It had been about two years that he'd been away serving our country in the Army, Army in Germany, and so in many ways I was just really anxious to see him. And then when this happened, honestly, I was, I was in denial for a good several weeks and because I, I just couldn't fathom that this could actually happen to me, and we didn't immediately have his body back to even have a funeral. So I just kind of went into survival mode of trying to just keep moving forward, hoping that if I could just keep moving forward, maybe it would all become a bad dream. So I actually immediately after Christmas break went back to went to college, and it was actually after being back there uh, a few days that we got the news that they were sending his body back to have the funeral. And mm. it was kind of at that point when I went home that the the process of grieving began when I was able to actually see him. And it and it just... It nearly nearly took me took me out at eighteen years old. You're not really equipped to handle something like that, and it was very difficult. I know. So did did you get together with uh, did your family and you get together with other families who had lost family members? Initially, we did. Uh, we had a uh, they had a candlelight vigil um, shortly after the bombing in Michigan. So several of the family members were from Michigan, and, and that was kind of the first time to meet some of the other people. And I think being with with them helped some, but then I, of course, immediately went back to school, and I was sort of isolated and trying to wrestle through this on my own. So it was was very difficult. Grieving is is very difficult, and especially for a young one. Did you have any counseling after that? Did you engage in that? Initially, uh, I did not, and it wasn't actually until my mom realized that I was kind of spiraling down into a pit of despair and depression that she really encouraged that, and so I did seek the the assistance of a counselor on my campus, and that really helped to validate the, the the process I was in because the greeting steps don't come in this sort of linear fashion. They come all different ways at any given time, and I, um, I needed to be sort of validated that what I was experiencing was normal. And it must have been so hard trying to be at school where everybody else is going to school and thinking about school, and you feel like you're in the fifth dimension, right? Just totally yeah. separate. That's exactly it. I was I was having this sort of uh, out of body experience at some level, just trying to reconcile that this really was true, truly happening to me. And I think because you're in college and at that age, everyone's really carefree and they're not used to really dealing with someone who's in this place of despair. Yes. So it was it was very difficult. Yeah, to to try to walk that out in that setting. It's bad enough if someone's in a car accident or something's accidental, but when something is a terrorist attack, that has to be a very different feeling than someone dying of an illness or someone dying in an auto accident that, you know, was maybe nobody's fault. It just was. So how, how did you, how were you feeling different from the other family members or were you feeling the same was there a, a similar reaction? Well, in, in many ways, I mean, we were all kind of thrust into the, the public eye and, and the media, and so I knew that we had to sort of know what our public response was going to be, even at 18. And I, I knew that, you know, as a Christian, I was called to forgive, but I didn't really even know who to forgive at the time. It was kind of this this idea out there. And so 
that was kind of the posture that my family tried to take in the media and with other people is that we were going to forgive. But at the time, it was just a sort of an idea because we didn't even know who we were forgiving yet. So that was the posture that I made a decision even at 18 years of age that I was going to make. And that's kind of been what set the course of my journey for the last 24 years. Yes. And how about the other victims' families? How did they react? Did they react similarly? I, I, I know that some of them have taken a very similar uh, course. I have some friends that I've become close with throughout the years because we've we've walked through this journey for 24 years of trying to see justice happen and see, you know, a case in 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 uh, the Netherlands and a conviction and all these things. So there are some that agree, but there are others that do not. And they actually have been very sort of vocally outspoken about the, the choice that I've made. They've chosen to sort of hold on to the the bitterness and think I'm somewhat um, yeah. crazy maybe in the path that I've taken. So some have agreed and some have not. Yes. And faith is is very helpful when you go through this, you know, knowing that you're you know, everything in life happens for a reason that God is is there for you. Is that something that was helpful to you to have that faith? Or yeah, did you I not think... have that faith at that at eight, at eighteen? A lot of people are not into having their faith really being very strong. Was yours at that time? Actually, what I had during that season was a bit of a crisis of faith, and I think I came out after sort of a year of wrestling through why something like this would happen to a good person like me. I mean, I kind of assumed that bad things weren't supposed to happen to good people, and of course we all know that's not true, and this, this sort of destructive and evil world we live in, sometimes that happens. But So it actually was a crisis for me. I had to sort of wrestle through it. In the end, I came out having to believe that God is good even in the midst of this, and that's probably the course that I've just tried to stay on is is to make sense of it. Sometimes you just can't make sense of it. Yeah. Yeah. But out of, out of every tragedy can come good. That's, that's the thing that we always have to remember. And sometimes look at, we, we look at what you've done in terms of teaching forgiveness and writing your book. Um, tell us about the nonprofit, uh, peace and prosperity Alliance and why you started it. This organization actually came about after going on a personal reconciliation trip to Libya in 2004, and this was part of the journey that I felt like I needed to make because I realized that in the midst of the the trial and all that was happening that I was beginning to sort of generalize and say everyone from Libya is a terrorist, and I didn't want to believe that way, so I wanted to go there and meet them so I could see them differently, and it was an incredibly um, cathartic and healing process for me to go there and to meet the people and to hear their stories and to share what had happened to me and to really try to find a way to, to not only forgive but to love my enemies. And it was out of that that I realized that there were people in that country that were suffering as much, if not more, than what my family had at the, the hands of the same man that was responsible for my brother's death. And I realized that the only way that I could make my brother's death not be in vain would to be to sort of overcome evil with good by helping others that were suffering. And so I came back and started this nonprofit called the Peace and Prosperity Alliance that focuses on helping to bridge the gap between the developed and developing world and, and prevent things like terrorism and injustice and oppression, and have been working in Libya and other countries in that region since then for about the last eight years. So, Lisa, what does, what does your alliance do, and who are, who are part of the alliance? 
Uh, we basically are, uh, I kind of have the influence and opportunity to get into some of these regions because of my own story and my connection. So I've been kind of a door opener for others who wanted to go. I, the Leadership Institute in Benghazi, Libya, in January of this year, I brought trainers from all over the world, some of them working in Afghanistan, to train in things like uh, conflict resolution, leadership, ethics, project management, just looking at ways to sort of help the country rebuild. So I I basically work in collaboration with other people who are doing similar work and and bringing them in on our projects. Are there other countries that are supporting this alliance? Yeah, actually, I was just, um, just recently in Libya, and I was invited just recently to come to Democratic Republic of Congo. I've been in Afghanistan. I've been in Sudan, Egypt. Iraq. Uh, I tend to go to the places that, <laughs> that there's conflict where no one really else wants to go. So that's where I tend to, to focus my time and energy. Yeah, I understand that you got to sit face to face with Gaddafi and you forgave him. What was tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that was actually a uh, a meeting that was about 17 years in the making. I had actually tried to meet with him on my first trip to Libya in 2004. He chose not to, but I did meet with some of the senior cabinet officials. But uh, I knew at one time I would meet with him. I knew it sort of had a vision in my mind one day I would sit with him. And had after that built, built a relationship with the, the Libyan ambassador to the U.S., started doing projects in Libya, and sort of had this level of rapport with him that when I found out Gaddafi was coming to speak at the U.N., I knew this was my chance. And so essentially it was about a 15-minute meeting. I showed up there and met with him at the Libyan mission, and my my whole sort of focus in that meeting was to, to really communicate this message that that I'm choosing to, to forgive and to respond in love and to, to focus on reconciliation in Libya rather than sort of responding in hate or in kind, and to communicate a message of, of peace, really, with him, even though I realized that he was a very evil and wicked man, and partly because I wanted to sort of communicate this message uh, that that love ultimately triumphs over hate. And he was um, quite serious during most of the meeting. And it was, wasn't actually till the end that, you know, I was basically sharing about what I was doing in Libya and offering condolences. And he was offering condolences. Uh, but he never really said I did it and or even sorry that he just said, I'm sorry it happened. Right, and, right. And then in the end, I gave him a small gift. I gave him a, a pen, a cross pen. And that was, to me, just a sign of goodwill. It was just me saying, I'm choosing once again to respond in an extravagantly gracious way. And it was the only time in the the meeting that he actually smiled. And it was really interesting to see because it was like for a brief second, his countenance softened and he said, thank you. And you could actually tell he was authentically touched. So for me, it was a gift in a way because I saw, even though I knew he was, a very evil person. I saw his humanity just for a brief moment, and I realized how very far off he'd gotten from maybe who he was created to be. Yes. How did you feel when the whole issue with Gaddafi in recent years with what happened to him? Well, I mean, I had been working in Libya during the revolution. I actually was there on the day um, in Benghazi, the day that the International Court issued the arrest warrant for him. I was actually speaking at a rally for about 100,000 people in Libya. So it was, it's been a little, it was a little bittersweet to hear the news because it's almost like for me, his death was more about the Libyan people at that point because I kind of had done my 
right. my own healing process. And for them, it was like their justice, I guess. And so it was a little bittersweet, especially considering the fact that it was actually conflict resolution day that he was killed. And I'm actually speaking at a conference on ways to resolve conflict more peacefully and hearing the news about him right. um, being killed the way he was. So it was a little a little strange. Yeah, really strange. What about the justice? You know, people wonder about forgiveness and justice. And, and I don't know if you ended up having to testify in the court or being at the court with, uh, how was that, the, you know, kind of explain the justice for the victims versus the forgiveness? How, do, how did that work for you? Yeah, I actually went to the trial in the Netherlands several times and was able to actually follow it. They actually, the Department of Justice had a set a location where we could watch it because I thought it was an important part in the process because I think that really to me justice is primarily about bringing someone to a place of repentance hopefully and then deterring future bad behavior more than it is about being punitive. And so I wanted to see that come to to fruition because I think it was an important part of the process and also communicating a message to the world that terrorism is unacceptable. And so I kind of think of justice going hand in hand with forgiveness where sometimes people think they're separate. They think of forgiveness as like license to, to do something. And I, I believe very um, opposite that that's the case. I believe it's, it's an important part of the process of accountability. Um, and in our situation, like, one of the things that's given me a little bit more peace is even though Qaddafi never said, I'm sorry, I did it, he did take responsibility. And I've learned in their culture that they don't apologize by saying, I'm sorry, they apologize through their actions. And so it's almost like they say, I didn't do it, but yet they, if their actions say I did, it's, it's sort of their perspective on admission. So yeah, a different culture. Yeah. Yeah. I think people think that if you forgive, you're letting somebody off the hook. And that's mm-hmm. not really the truth, is it? Why don't you explain that? No, not at all. I mean, it's, it's communicating this, this perspective. Because if, if you are someone who chooses to hold on to the offense, I mean, the best way I can think of it is, is if you have this, this, um, this hurt or this case that you're litigating in the inner courtroom of your heart over and over and over again, and you're, and you're wanting... Um, justice, but you can't find it. And so it's this idea of, of just letting it go. In those situations where you can have justice and you can bring someone to trial, that's an important part of it. But sometimes you may not see this in this lifetime. And so it's making a decision that I choose not to fall into bitterness and let this destroy me. I'm going to just let it go. And I think of it in terms of transferring it from the inner courtroom of my heart up to heaven's courtroom and letting God deal with it. Yes. They say that unforgiveness is like a poison that you take yourself expecting the other person to get sick or die from it. And it's exactly. real. And it really is a poison. You know, the, the, when you can forgive, there's freedom. It doesn't mean that there isn't accountability. It doesn't mean, and this is the thing that I know with you being an attorney mediator, like I am that, Forgiveness is really a way for the person who's carrying this pain Mm -hmm. to be relieved of that pain. And look at what, and and so many good things happen, like because you were able to forgive and give up that bitterness, look what you've been able to do to make some real changes, to start the alliance, the Peace and Prosperity Alliance, to speak more on conflict resolution, to be a coach in this, to really be a 
a voice for peace. If you hadn't given up that bitterness, where do you think you'd be now? Oh, I can I can tell you that I would be probably an incredibly destructive person towards myself and maybe other people even because it's it's too much to handle. There's been so many questions, unanswered questions, and confusion, and, and just this whole thing has never been fully resolved in the way that most of the family members would have liked. And so, if I hadn't made a decision, I would not be making the influence in the world I am today, as well as the fact that. Because I've chosen to walk this path, it's given me an authentic voice to speak into other people's lives. And if I wasn't living it out, I could not with any credibility be able to speak into the lives of people in Afghanistan, Libya, and Sudan and, and encourage them and teach them how to forgive. Yes. Um, if I hadn't done it, I couldn't do it. Right. And the fact that you walk your talk and you walk the path, that is stronger than anything you teach. You are the teacher, and the, your message is you, which is really, I think, helpful. Let's talk about the six stages of forgiveness. Could you do that? Absolutely. Um, I kind of look at the first stage of forgiveness and the forgiveness process really as kind of identification of what is the true hurt. I mean, what is the true source of pain that we need to try to try to forgive her? Because you, as a mediator, know as well as I do that sometimes people come to the table and they say, this is what I'm upset about. But when you start to dig a little deeper, you realize it's something very different or something deeper that you maybe need to get to. So it's really identifying, okay, what is the true source of uh, pain here? In the situation with my brother, it was, it was pretty clear, but that isn't always the case. And the second stage is really the validation of... Uh, that what happened to you is wrong. People need to hear that that what happened to them was wrong, it was inappropriate, before they can even begin to think about moving forward. And I, I know that sometimes people just expect you to sort of move forward before you've even been able to feel the fullness of it. And so you need to hear it from other people, sometimes a counselor, a mediator, other people can assist in that process. Yes. The third stage is uh, really the grieving process, and this is... I mean, sometimes it's grieving the loss of the relationship. It's a loss of something, loss of the ideal. And to really feel the fullness of the pain in that in order to, to then begin to think about moving forward. But you have to feel it before you can, can really forgive it. Right. The fourth is on um, the confrontation. And this is probably the most difficult and the, uh, probably the most overlooked. And the reason is confrontation is difficult, and that really is about the thing that keeps people holding on to this offense or this hurt is they're waiting for justice. They're waiting for someone to say, what I did was wrong or I'm sorry. And sometimes that won't even happen unless you're willing to go to the person and let them know what they did hurt you or that it was, you know, offensive. And, and the reason we're afraid to do this is because we don't know how they'll react, and sometimes people are unsafe and, or unavailable. So you, you can't con- confront them, but in those situations where you can, or you can even bring a third party to the table to help in that process, it, it helps to move the person to a place of repentance if they really do understand what they did was wrong. So giving people the benefit of doubt, coming to them in sort of a, a gentleness, a graciousness, and letting them know how their behavior impacted you. So hopefully they can say they're sorry or repent. Yeah, I, I really love that. The What I call the... Um, the gentle confrontation, the art of gentle confrontation, where you don't use the you, 
But just like what you're talking about, talking about when, when this happened, I was devastated. I lost my brother. I was just so lost. And just it's so that you speak from the I messages so they know the impact of it. And, and then you leave it there. You, you can't make them say they're sorry. But at least there is some catharsis in being able to say that. And I know sometimes people feel, you know, anger at a family member that's died. And I just tell them, you know, talk to them now, whether they're here in this plane or this planet or not. You can still do the same thing, can't you? Yeah, I mean, you can write a letter to them. It's symbolic. I was talking to somebody the other day and you said, you know, you, you sit sort of the invisible chair and you you talk to the chair as if the chair were the person that you wanted to share your feelings with. Yes. It's incredibly freeing and uh, journaling, writing, all those things can be really um, helpful in the process. Okay. So what stage are we on now? The fifth stage? Yeah. The fifth stage is really the forgiveness stage. And this is where, you know, hopefully you you have that other person, they've, they've said they're sorry or they've repented and, and, you know, and, and you feel very clearly that you can, sort of let it go. You can forgive. And this is really important part of this because sometimes we conditionally forgive. And it's not the same as like setting a boundary with someone who's unsafe. You can do that. But if if someone authentically is repentant and they have sort of shown this intention of changing direction and no longer doing what they did, then you shouldn't sort of keep bringing it up again. And so really choosing to let it, let it go, let it rest. And, and then sort of the last stage really, is in those situations where someone's either unavailable, unwilling to repent, is I, I say the remedy is is just, just like I said, transfer the case from the inner courtroom of your heart, transfer that wound up to heaven's courtroom, and let God deal with it. And in nearly every world religion, God is seen as a judge, so just let Him deal with it, and so that in this lifetime you don't have to carry it and you can have peace. Right, it's a God job. <laughs> yeah, and so I. I think one of the things about forgiveness that forever is listening to this, if someone says, I forgive you, and then you do the same thing over and over to that person, then it's, it's not really a repentance. And Absolutely. so, cause I, I, there were times when my daughter was a teenager where I would, you know, say, you know, you did this and this is what happened. And she goes, Oh, I'm so sorry. And then it would happen over and over again. And so that's the and that's the key issue is that if you are really wanting to be forgiven and really mean it from your heart, then you'll try and not do it again. And and I think that's an important thing for real repentance is that you don't do it again. You don't just say, "Oh, I'm sorry, forgive me." And um, so that that's a real issue. So if you had we we have just a, a couple minutes left um if you had some suggestions for people who have a very painful situation that that has happened maybe an ex-spouse maybe somebody you, yours is one of the worst because it was basically a terrorism and a murder um but i've had people that i've spoken with and clients that i've dealt with who have gone through terrible things where their children were murdered or something mm-hmm. like that what would be just a couple pieces of advice that you would like to give? Well, I think that the biggest thing is is that sort of to validate that what happened to them is absolutely wrong and they're right to feel the pain, but they don't have to con- continue to carry this. And to set boundaries where appropriate with people that are 
abusive or unsafe. But if there are areas or ways that you can work through things, whether through a third-party therapist or a mediator, somebody like that that can help restore the relationship, that that would be something I encourage. Now, if it's something heinous like murder, um, you know, the, the, the probably the thing you can do is if you have the opportunity, it would be incredibly uh, healing for you to confront the, the murderer if he's in prison or try to arrange some type of meeting with a restorative justice group or something like that. But because when you have that face-to-face, it's impactful for you to be able to tell that person how what they did made you feel, but also on the other side for them to hear it. I think it's, it's incredibly healing on both sides because I think we all realize that people who are wounded and hurting hurt other people. And so the, rather than continuing to carry that into your other relationships, the hurt that you've experienced because of the unresolved issues, try to find a way to, to bring healing to yourself so that you don't carry that into your children or your families or your generations to come. Right. Well, thank you so much for all of the great work that you're doing in the world, Lisa. And thank you for your book, Releasing Chains by Lisa Gibson. And we're out of time. Will you just give your website and we'll keep in touch? Yeah, you can find out more about the book at releasingthechains.com. Okay, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again soon, and and God bless you. Bless you as well. Okay, you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8.30 a.m. for Prescriptions for Healing Conflict. Thanks. It's about trust. expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.